Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself as divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to our time in the word, uh, let's pray together. Our heavenly Lord, we ask you to be with us, to bless us in our reflections, in our pondering, in our meditation, and importantly, in our application of the word about our Lord Jesus Christ to our lives and our churches today. And we pray this, dear Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I want you to imagine uh, a scene for a moment where you have a a man named Yaakov in the first century working as a stonemason in the Galilean city of Sepphoris. And he's there working as a stonemason. And he hears some some very prominent you know, civic leaders walking past, discussing the problem of a young prophet named Yeshua who is going around all of Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling of the forgiveness of sins and is attracting large crowds, calls himself the son of man. And many people are coming towards him. And then they're getting concerned about the sheer scale of the attraction and the following that this man is getting. And they're wondering why Herod Antipas hasn't done anything about it yet. And that night, Yaakov goes home. And the first thing he does, he talks to his mother Miriam. And he says, Mother, it's getting worse. We need to do something. And Miriam says, But we know 
He is special. We know God is with him. And Yaakov says, God may be with him, but everyone is against him. And I know unless we do something, they're going to kill him, mother. They're going to kill him. We need, you know what we have to do. And Miriam nods and she says, we'll go in the morning. Same time, this time in the city of Jerusalem, Caiaphas is reclining in a triclinium, being fed grapes by one of his slaves. And all of a sudden, one of the other priests comes in and taps him on the shoulder and says, Master, Caiaphas gets up, goes into a room adjacent to his quarters, and he goes, what? About the Galilean prophet. It's getting worse. He's no longer attracting people in the hundreds. It's now in the thousands. And Caiaphas says, well, what, what is Antipas doing about it? And the priest says, Antipas is doing what he does best. Nothing. He's heading south. He's heading for Jerusalem. He'll be here for the Passover. Caiaphas scratches his beard and says, send some of our best scribes. Mock him. Deride him. Expose him for the unlearned sap he is. That should put the matter to rest. And he walks away and goes back to his friends who he's entertaining. We have two groups, the very family of Jesus, the high priest's own retinue, all converging on Jesus with a view to stop him. His family seems to want to do some kind of like an intervention upon him because he's got a Messiah complex, which in this case actually turns out to be correct. (laughs) The the priests regard him as a threat to the civil order or he's kind of, you know, in, in... incurring on their own territory. So Jesus has got critics from within and from without. Uh, it, it seems as the whole world is against him. You know, the, uh, the, the uh, Egyptian theologian, Athanasius, had a word for this. He called it contramundum, you know, uh, against the world. Someone said to Athanasius, they said, the world is against you, Athanasius. And do you know what Athanasius said? Then I am against the world. <laughs> Contra- do you ever have contramundum days? where you feel like everything and everyone is against you, where you kind of wake up and the first thing from you, hear, you hear from your wife or spouse is you forgot to take the bins out, having arguments with the children about getting out of bed, arguments over who's going to feed the dog, you get to work, there's a pile of emails waiting for you, or just things going, do you ever have days where you think the whole world is against you? I call them my contramundum days, where the whole world is against me. But Jesus himself is having a day. He's having a contramundum day, okay, because his family thinks he's out, literally out of his mind. The chief priests are sending some delegates, some scribes, to, to basically do a philosophical hit job on him. So it's like the whole world is against him. And, and we can see in the story how, how Jesus responds. You know, he's, he's in a house. The, 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 um, the crowd is uh, gathered. I mean, there's no room. They can't even they eat. And Jesus and his mothers uh, and brothers are there, and they say he's out of his mind. And then the teachers of the law, the scribes, they accuse him of being in league with the prince of demons, you know. You know you're having a bad day when your family says you're insane and the religious leaders of the time say you're in league with Satan. It's a pretty bad day at the office, you you have to admit. 
And so we'll, we'll, do, we'll deal with these, with these issues one at a time. So the, the, the scribes come down and they want to marginalize this Galilean upstart, probably because he's attracting a lot of uh, publicity, attracting crowds, which makes leaders nervous. And they come up with a, with a surefire way to dismiss him. They say, look, you know, he's possessed by a demon. You know, he's, he's in collusion with Belzebub, the prince of demons. Now, Belzebub was the Philistine god of Ekron, known as the Lord of the Flies. And they're saying he's in league, but that's the power behind him. Now, note this. The scribes acknowledge that Jesus' exorcisms, his deliverance of people from demonic oppression, that they agree it's real. It's something really supernatural and amazing is happening, but they say this is kind of like a civil war within the satanic kingdom. This is kind of one demonic force attacking another demonic force. You see, the problem is Jesus seems to have a divine power, but he's exercising it beyond the normal strictures of authority. He's somewhat independent of the priests, even independent of the Pharisees, but he seems to have his this divine power, and they have to explain it away. And they explain it away on the grounds that these miracles, these mighty deeds, these exorcisms can be attributed to the work of Satan. And Jesus, Jesus points out that this is kind of silly. First of all, he says it's illogical. Jesus attacks their logic. Uh, he says, well, if Satan is fighting Satan, his kingdom is divided and he's doomed. I mean, what kind of king wakes up one day and says, you know, I'm feeling kind of bored. There's no jousting contests. There's no kind of, you know, festivals on. Oh, I think I'll just start a civil war, you know. That will entertain me for a few hours uh, until the dancing girls get here or something like that. And, and Jesus, look, Satan's not that stupid, okay. But he, he points out that what their premise is based on is correct. Satan's kingdom is suffering. But it's not suffering from civil war. Rather, it's suffering from full-scale invasion. Okay, In Jesus' exorcisms, Satan is suffering a series of paralyzing defeats because Jesus is the strong man who plunders and ransacks the demonic realm. Satan is not Jesus' ally, but rather he is Satan's chief adversaries. Jesus is fighting the battle against the, the principalities and the powers, and he's winning, and he's liberating those who are enthralled to Satan in sickness, sin, disease, and death. But the scribes don't see it. They, they were experts in the law. They were meant to be, you know, the, the, spiritual, the spiritual experts, masters in all things about the Torah and religion. And they, they look at what is going on here. And they attribute this work to Satan. And, and, that, and, and that's Jesus' second point against them. Not only is this illogical, this is a perilous inference to make. By attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus to Satan, the scribes are committing a heinous offense of God from which there is no recovery. They look at the work of God. They see it. It's fruit the liberation, the release from suffering, and they damn it all to hell. It's not that their evaluation is careless. 
The problem is their words are calculated. These were men who claimed to be experts on these matters, and yet they look at God's savoring and delivering work, and they put it at the feet of Satan. And they have reached the point, Jesus even says, where they have committed the unforgivable sin. You know, there is a wideness in God's mercy, but there is a point where mercy ends and judgment begins. And these scribes are flirting perilously close with the cliff of judgment. And in fact, Jesus says they've even already fallen off it. Sidebar, can Christians commit the sin, this unforgivable sin of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I remember when I once led a, uh, a youth group in Townsville, one of the kids in the, in the group said that his, his uh, best mate had stopped coming to church on the ground that he'd said something, you know, you know blasphemous. He'd you know, blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He was damned for all eternity. So there was no point going to church anyway. Uh, another friend of mine, uh, he was an associate minister, said his senior minister would never critique or blatantly critique any other person's ministry because if God's spirit was working in that person, um, you could potentially be committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what you think about this unforgivable sin actually does have uh, a few implications uh, you know, spiritually and, and pastorally. Um, but I, I rather like the definition of uh, the unforgivable sin given by John Piper. He, he, I think he puts it well. He says, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. Yeah, that, I think, is a good way to put it. But I would argue I don't think Christians can commit this unforgivable sin. You've got to remember, we're not just saved by grace and like you better be good or else. We're saved by grace, but we are sustained by divine grace as well. It's grace from beginning and end. Secondly, I would also argue that the difference between us and the scribes is we are in a different position of redemptive history. You know, we have received the Spirit. We've been born of the Spirit, baptized the Spirit. Uh, in, in the same way that um, Spirit gives birth to a spiritual life, we cannot, as those born of the Spirit, commit this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, I would argue if you are worried about having blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that's probably a good indication you haven't done it because it shows a level of contrition and concern not to dishonor the things of God. Now, in a moment of anger, pain, you have said something very inappropriate like, you know, sweet mother of Melchizedek or some other horrendous profanity, and, uh, and, and, and you're worried you've offended God. Just remember, read the Psalms. Read the book of Lamentations. People accusing God of being permanently out to lunch. Have you forgotten us, O Lord? Uh, do you have other things on your to-do list other than save your people? People really do pour out, and it's a real raw emotion, and there is nothing wrong with that. 
But people who commit this sin have hardened their heart to the point they are cold and indifferent to the spiritual things of God. And they have no remorse because they are incapable of it. And they have nothing more than hardened resolve against the very things of God in the Spirit and in His Son. Let's think about this now for a moment. What about us? Let's be perfectly honest, okay? Uh, For most of you, (laughs) your parents are probably not going to launch an intervention uh, for for having some kind of Messiah complex anytime soon, okay? And the uh, Archdiocese of Melbourne is probably not going to send a delegation of priests to try shame you in front of your fellow students. It's probably not going to happen, okay? But you are going to have contra mundum days in your life where you will feel attacked and betrayed by the very people close to you, where you will find other perhaps potential colleagues in ministry uh, less than helpful, or you're finding you're being unfairly attacked by the establishment. Now, I mean, this can happen in, in, in various in various ways. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I keep thinking about you know poor Andrew Thorburn and went he what he went through. The man literally did and said nothing wrong, but he was attacked in the media by Eston Football Club purely because of his association with his church. Okay, he did or said nothing that they could find fault with, purely on the basis of his association. Or I think also of um, someone I've been reading about recently, Pastor Wang Yi in China who's a a pastor of a reformed church there who refused to join the government-sanctioned church. Um, And he was was being uh, interrogated by uh, Chinese police, and he was having an argument about them. And he said to them, "I I want you to know that the future of the world is not the Chinese premier writ large. It is Jesus Christ writ large. I mean, that is... That's a that's that's a lot of fortitude to say that to your to the police who are also your potential torturers, executioners, and all sorts of things. Um, Wang Yi is to this very day in prison for standing up to the Chinese authorities, and we're going to face. We, 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 you may not face things on that scale, whether it's like an Andrew Thorburn or a Pastor Wang Yi, but you will face days of opposition, and often we've got to make sure that opposition is whether it's fair or unfair, sometimes you can do things that do need to be critiqued, do need to be um, uh, uh, explained to us the error of our ways, but there will be days where you will receive people trying to stop you simply because you're doing the work of God. And there will be powerful forces arrayed against you, and you will feel like you are completely out of your league, and you do not have the power and the ability, the intellect, the depth, the support network to face it. And the truth is, by yourself, you don't. But if God is with you, then nothing can stop you. That, 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 was, that was Gamaliel's view in Acts 5. Look, you can, you can smack these guys around, put them in jail if you like, but God, if God is with them, nothing's going to stop them. Neither mice nor men is going to get in their way if God is with them. But in that moment of resistance and hostility, there is a lot of temptations. Just to hide, flight, maybe try side with your opponents in the hope that that will alleviate your critics. Or you can simply dig down deep in your your convictions 
in your faith, and your faith is your chief defiance against the world in this age. Your, your creed, your confession is one of the most subversive things you can do with your life. You can stick to your creed and your confession, and you can say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and I followed him my whole life, and he has done me no wrong. And how now? In this hour of trial, shall I abandon my master who has forever been faithful to me? That's what Polycarp said when he was told to renounce Christ. Come on, man, just give us a token act of obedience to the emperor. Okay, just a pinch of incense. Hail the emperor, down with Jesus, and we'll let you go, man. We'll let you go. He says, I'd rather have Jesus any day, any day of the week and twice on Sunday than everything Caesar can offer me. When it's the family, the Caesars, or the priests from Jerusalem, we have to steal our resolve to fidelity. In those contramundum days where you think everything is against you, you've got to remember the words of Jesus. Men will hate you because of me, but remember, they hated me first. But the good thing that we have to help us along the way is we have our Christian, our, sorry, our Christian family. That's, notice how this passage ends. You know, when you know Jesus' family is kind of tapping on the door saying, ah, Jesus, um, mum and the brothers are outside, so um, let's stop playing prophets and let's come home. We need to have a talk. And Jesus' response, I mean, it's, it's quite dismissive. He says, oh, you know, who are my mother and brothers? Whoever does God's will, that's my mother and brothers. Uh, Jesus creates what we call a fictive kinship, a family of faith. And like all good families, we're meant to be the resources to help those people who are having those contramundum days. We come around that person. We love them. We care for them. We support them. Sometimes they need a word of encouragement. Sometimes they need a word of advice. Sometimes they need a word of admonition. But we're there to help and support each other in a family of faith. Now, that's been very important to me in my life. When I told my parents I was a Christian, they did, they did not take it well. I told them I was going to church, and they went, church? You know, you'd think I told them I was, you know, going to join uh, the circus or the foreign legion or something. They were mystified and perplexed. And then I told them I was quitting the military, giving up a, a promising career of going to foreign countries and killing people I'd never met. I was giving all that up to go to theological college. They couldn't see the attraction. Uh, because I, said, I thought I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather serve Jesus than kill on behalf of Her Majesty. I don't mind the, didn't mind the Queen, but I'd rather do that. And they didn't understand. They thought I was out of my mind. They didn't quite stage the intervention, but they thought I was out of my mind to do that. And what I had uh, around me, though, was a good Christian family who supported me and became a new family. And I know there are many students, past, present, that we have. They've had, by becoming a Christian or by going into ministry, they've had very big bust-ups with their family. And they've paid the price. And they've only got through with the encouragement of their Christian family around them. What I want us all to take away uh, from this story uh, is to remember that following Christ means you will inevitably get opposition from the world. It may not be on the scale 
of Pastor Wang Yi. It simply may you have some problematic uh, issues at the office, but you are going to have contramundum days. But around you, what you have is the family of faith to support you. And what we need to be as the family of faith is supporting those who are experiencing opposition from the world, upholding them in prayer, encouraging them, advising them, supporting them, encourage them to keep going in the race, to keep bearing the burdens, to stay in the fight because they fight for us, they fight for God, and they fight for you. And on that note, let's pray. Our Heavenly Lord, we, we know we have days where we feel like everyone is against us. But we take treasure, Lord, uh, in the fact that you are for us, the Spirit is with us, and Christ is our brother. Uh, Lord, we pray we can love and support all our family no matter what they're going through. So when push comes to shove, when the rubber hits the road, they will feel the love of their Christian family around them, supporting them and caring for them when they feel that they're most attacked and they're most vulnerable. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.